You are listening to The North Podcast, a ministry of Mount Perrin North in Marietta, Georgia. All right, good morning. Let's grab your Bibles and let's get into the Word this morning, all right? Nobody. Well, for those of you who don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. How about that? I'm excited this morning to be able to talk to you about a subject that is so um, 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 relevant in people's lives. The title of the message is simply misunderstood. I want to look to you, show you this morning about a passage where Jesus is so misunderstood and it sort of exemplifies how misunderstood he was for the entirety of his ministry here on this earth and how those things happen in our lives and what we can learn in the process. So in Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53, this is the night that Jesus is arrested and the night before he's going to be crucified. He is taken to the high priest's home and he is put on trial there because there are two trials. There is one at the high priest's home because he had to be convicted of quote-unquote Jewish law, but he also had to be convicted of Roman law. And so in these moments, he is, at this moment, he is at the high priest's home. And so we pick up in verse 53 as he's arriving there. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. And there he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Inside, the leading priest and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against him so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke up against him, but they contradicted each other. And finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days, I will build another made without human hands. But even then, they didn't get their story straight. And then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. And then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today for your word. And I pray, as Pastor Brett said earlier about our earlier prayer, God, that I recognize these people don't need to hear from me today. They need to hear from you. And God, I pray that just be a conduit and a mouthpiece of your word May, as your words go forth, you would anoint them, that you anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive, so you may accomplish your perfect will. And we'll be careful to give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. About 12 years ago, I left Mount Perrin North and um, went to Canton, Ohio to pastor. And when I arrived there, I'm from the South. I grew up in Mississippi, on the coast in Mississippi. So when I arrived there, I felt like a fish out of water. Nothing was the same. I grew up on the Gulf of Mexico. I was now 40 miles from Lake Erie. Um, the foods that I liked, they did not have there. I went to a restaurant called Bob Evans, okay? Great restaurant, great restaurant. I looked at their menu, and I told them what I wanted to eat. And they said, what would you like with that? And I said, I'd like grits. And they looked at, the waiter looked at me, and he said, we don't have grits. I said, what? He said, we don't have grits. I said, yes, you do. He said, no, we don't. I said, yes, you do. He said, no, we don't. I said, I'm looking at your menu. He goes, yeah, we do. Hold on, let me go check if we do or not. So he goes back to the kitchen, comes back, and he says, turns out we do have grits. And I said, you know what? Never mind. If you don't know you got them, you don't know how to cook them. (laughs) One of the first couple of Sundays I'm there, 
there's a lady that comes up to me. I tell a story about being from Mississippi and she comes up to me after the service and she said, are you sure you're from Mississippi? (laughs) Quite. And she said, well, you don't sound like you're from Mississippi. And I said, what does Mississippi sound like? And she said, well, you don't sound like you have that deep country draw of Mississippi. I said, okay. And then she asked the question that just took me aback. She said, how did you get rid of it? (laughs) She said, did you educate it out of yourself? And I said, are you insinuating that accent is an indicator of education? And she said, no, not at all. And you could hear the car going in reverse (laughs) as she's trying to extricate herself out of this circumstance. Turns out she was saying something. She didn't mean it that way, and she didn't. Literally, she and her husband were two of the best supporters of that church and some of my biggest advocates, great friends while we were there. But the moment we met each other, There was a misunderstanding that could have taken us way down a wrong road. You ever done that? You ever said something, you just go, that is not at all how I meant that. If you're married, raise your hand. (laughs) You have, all of you have. And you think to yourself, I meant it this way. How did it go so wrong so fast? Or have you ever been on the receiving end where somebody was trying to tell you something, you took it another way, and they are just beside, they're flabbergasted. How could you even, under, how could you read that into this? It messes up relationships. It messes up intention. If there's ever anyone that's been misunderstood, it's been Jesus. He spent three and a half years in ministry on this earth. And the Bible says that his disciples who record his words continually say, Here's what he did, here's what he said, and we didn't understand it until he was gone. If his disciples got it wrong so much, because part of me says, if I spent three and a half years face-to-face with Jesus, surely I would get it, right? Sure, how can they spend that much time with him and not get it? And yet we can misunderstand God and his son all the time. What he says, what he does, what he doesn't say, what he doesn't do, we read into his character things that are not there. In this passage, I want to show you two different ways that we misunderstand God and we can falsely accuse him of something that he's not guilty at all of. First of all, we can misunderstand God when we mistake his character, when we mistake his character. And the way that happens is usually because there's some pre-existing bias that we believe. In verse 55, here's what it says. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus. That's huge. That's important. They're not there to put him on trial and say, is this a reasonable charge against him? They're not trying to find truth. They are there to find evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. This is the purpose from the very beginning. 
They're not trying to find out what was his intentions. They're not trying to find out what he meant by these words. They're not trying to find out why he did what he did. They are doing it because they have an agenda or a bias. They have an agenda or a bias, and then the actions or lack of actions that he does, they filter through his, their bias. It's what we do when we think God should be doing something or he shouldn't be doing something. It's on the macro level. It's when we look at circumstances and think, surely God ought to do something about that. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the first five days of creation, after he created all of those things, at the end of that, he said, and it is good. At the end of the sixth day, when he creates humans, he says, it is very good. So God declares that what he created is good. And yet we know that when sin entered the world, everything went awry. Everything began to go wrong to the place where we had no way of rectifying the situation for ourselves. He had to send his own son to pay the price for our sins and to give us the opportunity to have new life in Christ. But God made things good And we mess them up. But then we want to hold God accountable by our own bias and our own standards. We say things like, you know, if God is good, then there'd be no hunger or poverty in the world. If God is good, there'd be no war in the world. If he really is a loving God, there'd be no hell. And yet Jesus speaks to each of these And it sounds quite confusing to the person who has a bias. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. What he's saying is this, as long as this earth is existing in its current condition with sin that has entered the world until God comes again, until Jesus returns and restores all things to be right, you're always going to have the poor with you. And you're always going to have war because nation is going to rise up against nation before Christ comes again. He says, you're going to see these things. They're going to exist. It's not because God's not good. It's because we chose sin. And God in his goodness sent Jesus to us. Listen, even the idea of hell, hell was not created for you and me or anyone else, no other human. It was created for the devil and the angels that followed him. And the Bible makes clear that you don't have to have any part of that. That the only way a person winds up in hell is they follow their own devices and follow the leading of the devil and live their life apart from Christ here on this earth and they choose to live their life apart from him in eternity. Because the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have eternal life. The problem with this approach is that we assume that we know what is good. We assume that we know what is good. How do you actually know what good is? I mean, there has to be a standard. And the standard can't be, well, I think this is good and this is not. I mean, there's some things I told you a couple of weeks ago. There's some things that we just know are wrong because God has set them in the heart of men and women. I mean, we know murder is wrong. We know child abuse is wrong. You don't, you don't have to pass laws for that. We just know that. 
But yet, your idea of goodness and your idea of goodness and your idea of goodness and my idea of goodness may be totally different. There has to be a standard other than our feelings. So here's how I know. Our feelings are not standards. Feelings in general are not standards. Because feelings come and they go and they rise and they fall and there's not a standard there. And your feelings are different than my feelings. Let me give you an example. How many of you have ever driven on the interstate? Let me see your hands. Okay, you can put them down. I will not ask for anyone else to raise their hand from this point forward, okay? So it doesn't matter what speed you're going on the interstate. It doesn't matter. You think you're the standard. You think you're normal. It doesn't matter if you're going 55 in a 70 mile an hour zone. It doesn't matter if you're going 70. It doesn't matter if you're going 80. You think you're the standard. You know why I know this? Because everybody that passes you by quickly, you think is a maniac and everybody that slows you down is a moron. And it doesn't matter what the speed is because you think you're the standard. John Ortberg wrote a book on this, said everybody's normal till you get to know them. <laughs> the whole premise of the book is this, is that we tend to judge normal by us. This is why when you see something different from you or the way you think or the way you were raised, you think, oh, you never think that's different. You think, oh, that's weird because you think you're normal. There was a man that came to Jesus and said, to flatter him, he said, good teacher, let me ask you a question. And Jesus stopped him and said, why do you call me good? And then he said, only God is good. So there's a two-prong approach to that statement. There's a theological approach where only God is good. The only person that gets to define what good and evil is, is the creator of the earth, is the creator of you, is the creator of me. That's the theological. Only God is good. But he's also asking this man, he says, why do you call me good? Because only God is good. Are you recognizing in this moment that I am the son of God? that I am Lord. When we predetermine what we think good is and try to hold God to our flighty, wishy-washy standards, we mistake his character. And we try to hold him accountable to our flakiness. Is that painful? Yep, it is. But it's true. Any pre-existing bias against God is because we want to be the judge of what the standard is. And only God gets to declare what is good and what is evil. So we misunderstand God when we mistake his character. And we misunderstand God when we mistake his words. When we mistake his words. Um, my kids and I this week were laughing. Um, we... we Somehow, I don't know how we got on the subject, but we're in the living room. We got on the subject. There was a song that we were talking about, and the song, we realized what the words were. I said, did you know these were the words of this line of this song? And every one of us realized 
We've never sung that song right, ever. And none of us have sang the same words. Like we all, I told them what my words were. They were like, how did you get that? They told me what their words were. Well, Lauren told me what her words were. And I just said, how did you get that? Bradley just finally admitted, he goes, I just mumble the thing till I get past that part and I'm dead. <laughs> we were just laughing at ourselves. And it reminded me of when I was um, a teenager, there was a song, I'm a child of the 80s. So I'm gonna give you two reference points from the 80s, okay? So when um, early 80s, there was a song that was entitled, Our Love's in Jeopardy. Um, and it happened to be that my brother, um, who I hope is never going to watch this message at all. My brother was dating a girl and her name was Stephanie. So he heard the song, not as our love's in jeopardy. He heard the song as our love, I love you, Stephanie. <laughs> and he's singing it around the house. And I'm like, that sounds familiar, but it's slightly off, you know? And I just finally, what are you singing? And he goes, oh, I wrote this song. That's my girlfriend. I'm, you wrote this song. Isn't that neat? And I'm like, that's not the words at all, man. So I started looking up probably one of the funniest ones I looked up and I went, misunderstood, misheard song lyrics. There was a song also in the 80s by Jefferson Starship called, We Built This City on Rock and Roll. Okay, that's the words. The most misunderstood line of that song is, they thought it said, we built this city on sausage rolls. <laughs> you hear that and you think, how does anybody get that out of that? And it's humorous. But then there are times where it's miscommunicated and it has deadly consequences. In the early 60s, in the height of the Cold War, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the president of the USSR, chairman of the USSR, gave a speech where he was warning the United States and the words that he said was, if you continue down this path of Cold War, he just basically frivolously said, if you continue down your path, this path, it's your funeral. So it was a warning. What got translated in the moment to the Americans and was reported in newspapers was that he simply said, we will bury you. Immediately, President Kennedy started moving different things into Cuba to protect ourselves. And it wasn't long after that until the Cuban Missile Crisis began to arise and brought us to the brink of nuclear war. I'm not saying the comments weren't bombastic, but they were so mistranslated that it felt like something that was a warning became an immediacy. Jesus, in this trial... The Bible tells us that certain people came up and they said this. And finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, I will build another made without human hands. Now, you have to understand that is a threat against their temple, they said. Their physical temple. But John chapter 2 verse 19 tells us actually what the words Jesus said was not speaking about that temple, not at all, speaking about his own body, speaking about his life, he says, all right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. They accuse him of trying to destroy the holy temple. 
when he never says that and literally says, go ahead, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. They misunderstand his words and they attack and accuse him and they attack his character. They believe in God. They believe in his goodness. They believe in his power in theory, but they misapply it. How many times do we do that in our own lives? We believe theoretically in something, but we doubt him personally in that same thing. People have no problem believing God is good. People have no problem believing God is a provider. They have no problem believing that he's a healer. They have no problem believing that he gives peace. But when they face circumstances that make them doubt God's goodness, they begin to ask questions, if he is a provider, then why am I feeling lack at this moment? If he is a healer, then why am I sick or why is my loved one sick? If he truly gives peace, then why am I constantly feeling anxious? Does God not care? Is God's promises, though I know them to be true, are they not real for me as well? The high priest looks at Jesus and he says, you've heard all they said. Are you not going to answer these accusations? And The Bible says that Jesus stood there silently and did not respond. And then the high priest said, I'm going to ask you something. Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, I am, using the name of God, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand and coming in power. His only answer was not about the circumstances. It wasn't even about the accusations. He only said, here's what I'll answer you. I am, and you will see. I am the son of God. I do hold all power and authority in my hands, and you will see that power, that authority, at the right time, in the right place in your life. That's all he says. And you may be here and say, but I want more. That's why it's called a walk of faith. In John chapter 11, Jesus is called to the home of a friend who had been sick and now he had died. His name was Lazarus. And when he arrives there, Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, are there. Martha comes to him and she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But now I know that if you ask God anything, he'll do it. And Jesus said, your brother will live again. Do you believe this? And she answered him, not personally, but theoretically. She gave the right theological answer, but couldn't see the personal application. 
He said, do you believe he'll live again? And she said, I believe he will live again at the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus said, you don't get it, do you? I am the resurrection. I am the life. What you are looking for is not weighed out there. It's not weighed down the line. It's standing right here in front of you. The same one who's going to appear on the clouds and every dead is going to rise again. And every believer is going to rise with them. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The same one who is coming on the clouds is here through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's still the resurrection and the life. He's still the one like he did that day to say, roll the stone away. And he looks into the grave and he makes one simple command. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man walked out. And he looked at everyone and said, now take off those grave clothes. Loose him and let him go. And I want you to hear me this day. Some of you have believed God theoretically and you've believed God properly theologically, but you think for some reason that doesn't apply to me. Can I tell you this morning, I believe he wants to roll the stone away. I believe he wants to speak into your circumstance that you thought was dead and dried up and gone. And he wants to call forth that thing and watch it live again and watch you take the grave clothes off the circumstances you thought were going to cripple you or kill you and let you live again today. Because that's who he is, the resurrection and the life. And can you see him, not theoretically down the line, as bringing hope to you, but being the hope right here, right now? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. The one who calls dead things to life does it more so than any other place when he calls the deadness of a life that is lived without him into the new life that he offers through the power of his crucifixion and his resurrection. And if you're in this room today, when you came in here, you know things weren't right between you and the Lord. But you want to make a decision to follow him and get that new life. I just need you to pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you that your grace is real and the, the truth about who you are is so apparent in this place. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to clean me up from the way I used to live and transform me into the new person you're creating me to be. I yield my life to you right now. It doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to you. And I pray that this day I will never be the same. I'm going to ask everyone in the room, just pray this prayer of profession. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Come on, one more time. Jesus, I give you my life. Now, with your head still bowed, your eyes still closed, no one but um, myself and the ministry team looking around. If that's you, you know when you came in this place, things aren't right between you and the Lord. I'm not here to embarrass you. But you know you've made a decision to follow him for the first time or the first time in a long time today. I want to pray for you this week. If that's you, I hope you'll be brave enough just to say, that's me, Pastor, pray for me. Will you raise your hand really high and keep it up just for a moment, please? Just keep them up just a moment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. All right, you can put them down. Your eyes still closed, head still bowed. 
if you're in this place and you say, Pastor, that is me. The description that what I thought was possible now seems so far gone, so far removed. It seems almost dead to me. I need God to breathe life back into my dream, back into my body, back into my circumstances. And I need him to call forth newness in my life right now. If that's you, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you this week? Yeah, you're not alone. Keep them up just a moment, please. Amen. Amen. All right, you can put them down. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for new life. We thank you for hope. Hope that is beyond reason. There's no reason we should have this kind of hope, and yet you give it to us because of the grace that you provide through Jesus Christ our Lord. For every person that has made a decision to follow you, Lord, I pray that the weight of sin and shame that they brought into this place is now lifted off of them and that joy begins to invade their hearts and pervade their lives. God, for those in this place and watching online that say, I need you, Lord, to speak into my circumstance and I need you to bring life back into it. Lord, I pray that as you spoke to Lazarus, you speak to dreams and you speak to bodies that are sick. You speak to minds that are filled with anxiety. You speak to those, those places where we lack provision, Lord. And you say, come forth. Let the dead live again. And Lord, as you breathe life again into those circumstances, I pray joy, joy would fill us. In the name of Jesus, for your glory, we ask and pray, amen and amen. Hey, can you celebrate with me today? Six people gave their hearts to Jesus today. Amen. Amen. Listen, if you made a decision today or in the last few weeks, we'd love to help you get started in following Christ. At the end of service, our grow team will be down front here. Just make your way, um, and uh, um, uh, hopefully you can make your way down here. One of our ministry teams may come near you, have a talk with you. But in any way, we want to help you in that process. We are so proud of you. But more than that, the Bible says there is rejoicing in the presence of angels. There is a party in heaven because of what you did today, and we rejoice as well. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please, and I want to remind you, in our July series, you actually get to determine what our July series is going to be about, so if you've got a card, take that with you, write down something that you want to hear a sermon on, and drop it in one of the giving boxes on the way out. Next week is Mother's Day, so a couple of things. I want you to be at church. I want you to bring your family, but if you forgot, you better remember Mama next week, okay? Just so you know, I've given you forewarning. Hope you have a great week, and uh, allow me the privilege to bless you before you go. The Lord bless you and keep you. Heavenly Father, we thank you right now for what your word tells us. It's a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. 
spiritual gifts that you give to the church at appropriate times to speak encouragement to us. Thank you for telling, about, telling us about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Thank you for caring enough that in a moment you can speak life into each of us. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Can you give the Lord praise in this place? Amen. Amen. Every week, we speak a blessing over you from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. And the reason we do it is because the Bible says, when you do it, he said, you place my name on them. And as you leave here, I want the name of God just resting on you. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Let's give our response from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. God bless you folks. Love you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you would like to learn more about North, be sure to check out our website at mountparanorth.com. If you have any questions, you can email us at info at or give us a call at 770-578-9081. And if you're in the Marietta, Georgia area, we'd love to have you join us for worship next Sunday at 945 or 1115 a.m. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.